If you're not yet in Mark chapter 15, please take a Bible and turn to Mark 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, that's perfectly fine. There's one in the rack in front of you. It looks like this. And if you turn to page 828, you will be in the Gospel of Mark chapter 15. As we speak together today about this all-important story, the crucifixion of Jesus, I want you to understand that it sometimes goes by another name. It's sometimes called the humiliation of Jesus. It's called that for two related reasons. The first is that the word humiliation, we might forget, actually comes from the word humble, to be humble. And in the crucifixion, we see the humility of Jesus, that he chooses not his own will, not what be in what is in his best interest, not in what are his hopes and his dreams, but he yields his will to God the Father, and he chooses to obey. This is the ultimate act of humility whereby he humbles himself and becomes obedient even to death on a cross. And this is the story of Jesus' humility. We also call it the humiliation of Jesus because it is the event in which he is humiliated in the way we normally use that word. To be humiliated is to be embarrassed. It's to have anything and everything that you might draw glory or respect or honor taken away from you. And in the crucifixion of Jesus, he both demonstrates his humility and obedience and he is at the same time humiliated. We look at the story of his humiliation today. As we walk through the story, I want to show just the depths to which that humiliation took him. And then I want us to understand what it is that that humiliation accomplished. And then finally to see what it accomplished for you and for me. We begin with the story of Jesus' humiliation. And it is a descending story of humiliation upon humiliation. You heard the passage read for you this morning. The beginning of his humiliation here in chapter 15 starts in verses 1 through 15. And here Jesus is on trial. And to understand, so these are not just words on a page, we have to realize this is the story of the judge of the entire universe being put on trial before a regional Roman governor of little influence, little authority, and little power. This man, Pilate, is a terrible judge. Jesus, who always judges rightly, 
who always does what is right in all his judgment, is put on trial before a man who knows he's innocent and refuses to do the right thing. Worse than that, he abdicates his responsibility as judge and instead of trying Jesus in a court of justice, Jesus ends up getting tried in the court of public opinion. Pilate essentially asks the crowd, what do you want to do with him? And the crowd votes, they want Barabbas set free, a murderer and an insurrectionist. And then, egged on by the leaders, they vote to have him crucified. The judge of all the earth, condemned to die by a crowd who voted against him for no reason other than hatred. It's humiliating. The humiliation continues in verses 16 to 20. Here is Jesus, the king of all the universe. All authority, all powers, all rulers, all dominion is beneath him. He is the king over all things. And he comes to a group of soldiers that he gave life to, that he commissioned, that he at the very moment they treat him this way is sustaining their strength to be able to do this to him. These soldiers who owe him their allegiance the king of all things, the king of kings and the Lord of lords brought to a group of soldiers and what do they do to him? They put a robe on him. But it's not his clothes and it's certainly not a robe of majesty. They give him a crown but it's a crown of thorns. They kneel before him to pay homage but it's a mockery. Instead of offering him their weapons to serve in his kingdom, they take their staffs and repeatedly beat him on the head. And then Mark says they spit on him. The king of kings and the lord of lords. Spittle running down his face from these soldiers who owe him everything. How humiliating, how embarrassing. It continues in verses 21 to 32. Jesus is crucified, hanging on a cross. We are told that the mocking and the insults continue. And then Mark closes this section with this line. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Jesus, the righteous one, who's done no sin, who's committed no wrongs, who has existed every day on this earth to serve and to love and to teach and to bless and to heal 
and to feed people is being rejected by the criminals on his side. These are the lowest of the low. These are people who are on death row who have been convicted of capital punishment. They have been accused of sins and they have been declared to die and there they are absolutely rejected by society and they choose to heap insults on him. That means that Jesus is the lowest person in society. Do you understand? The righteous one. The one who deserves to be exalted over everybody is rejected by the lowest of people. Criminals condemned to die want to spend their last breath making fun of him. It's humiliating. He continues to descend into the humiliation in the next section. Verses 33 to 36, right in the middle in verse 34. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The son of God who has been with the Father from before the beginning of time, the only begotten of the Father, rejected by his Father. And now we see not only has Jesus sunk to the lowest place in society, he has sunk to the lowest place in human history. No person, no matter what they've done, has ever had God turn their back on them, except Jesus. At this point, his father will have nothing to do with him. God, the compassionate, merciful, long-suffering, gracious God, who will not turn his back on anyone, because of the sins that Jesus is bearing, turns his back on him and he is rejected by God. At this point, he is absolutely, utterly, totally alone. How humiliating. And then the final insult. Verse 37. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. It's strange that he would breathe his last with a loud cry. When you're being crucified, people don't normally cry out. It's because they're suffocating to death. This is a reminder that he's not so much having his life simply taken from him as he is willingly, in obedience, giving it up. Think about this for a moment. Jesus is not only the Son of God, He is God, very God Himself. He is the author of life. And yet, He has no life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Life is the essence of who He is, He is the creator and sustainer of life. 
He is God himself. And he has no life. The evidence, the proof that he was who he claimed he was. He taught that he was God. He taught that he came to bring life. The evidence that this was true taken from him at the cross. The author of life, dead. Absolutely, totally humiliating. Every shred of honor, glory, praise that he might have derived from being the judge, the king, the righteous one, the only begotten son, and very God of very God, all taken from him. When he dies on that cross, he is lower than the lowest. Absolutely alone. Absolutely and totally humiliated. There is not one shred of honor or praise or dignity left to him. He was humiliated in obedience to God's plan. He humbled himself because this was not something that was simply done at random. This was part of God's plan. So the question before us now is, what did this absolute total humiliation accomplish? Mark gives us a glimpse into it in verse 38. At the moment of his death, it says the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now maybe like you, when I read that I thought, well that doesn't seem that big. Like this, if this is the culminating event in human history, if this is the absolute and total humiliation, if this is the example of humility and obedience, we get one line that a curtain in a temple was torn in two. It seems small, but it is of infinitely great importance. So let me try to explain why it is that that phrase is so very, very important. The author of Hebrews helps us to understand it. He says what you have to understand is where that curtain was and what it represented. In Hebrews 9, he says, now the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. He's gonna talk about the tabernacle which gave way to the temple, which is what Mark is talking about here. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. Here's a graphic representing what it is that that passage is trying to say. If you look to the left of the graphic, they've sort of cut away to see inside. 
to the left is what Hebrews is talking about. That's the holy place in the Jewish tabernacle or the Jewish temple. In the holy place were the things that represented God's presence on this earth. Light, a table that had bread on it for food, and then, although the author of Hebrews at first seems to say that the altar of incense is in the other room, it's not. He really means that it's here, but the smoke is going into the other room. But the altar of incense, which represents people's ability to pray to God. And in the Jewish tabernacle, in the holy place, there were the signs of the blessings of God's presence. Light, food, and the ability to ask God for help. The holy place was forbidden to all people except for Jewish priests who had been sanctified and set apart to do that. That's the holy place. To the right is what the author of Hebrews is calling the most holy place or the holy of holies. That little square there is where the Ark of the Covenant was. This is the representation of God's presence here on earth. In other words, what this means is, although God created this whole earth, because of sin, God is separate from this place. He dwells in heaven. We live here on earth. But through the tabernacle and the temple, God made provision for one small square of earth that God would be somewhat uniquely present in that place, the most holy place, the holy of holies. The problem was no one was allowed into the holy of holies except one person on one day of the year. See, what God had done because of the sinfulness of humanity, from all the nations of the earth, he chose one nation, Israel. And from all the tribes of Israel, he chose one tribe, Levi. And from all the families in that one tribe, he chose one family, the house of Aaron. And from all the descendants of Abraham or Aaron in that family, he chose one person, the high priest. And on one day out of 365, the most holy day, the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, God allowed that one man, not a woman, that one man for a brief period to come into that little square piece of earth in which God's glory dwelt to some extent on earth the way it does in heaven. to symbolize the fact that nobody but that one person on that one day ever got to be in God's presence. There was a curtain. A curtain between the most holy place and the holy place. That's what it looked like in the tabernacle, our artist representation. That's what it was in the temple it's that curtain that got torn in two. That on the moment Jesus died, 
the Father, because it tears from top to bottom. The Father rips the barrier between the most holy place and the holy place open. Now that itself is just a symbol of something even bigger. A symbol of what Mark showed us at the very beginning of the gospel. The very first thing that Jesus did in Mark's gospel when he shows up on the scene. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven, what? Being torn open. And the spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love, with you I am well pleased. Do you see that that phrase, being torn open? That's the exact same word that you have in Mark 15 for what happened to the temple curtain. And what we come to realize is, is that what happened with the temple curtain was itself just a sign. The sign was shown to us in Jesus' baptism when he came to be baptized in obedience. God ripped open the barrier between earth and heaven. And what came through that barrier down descending on Jesus? The spirit of God. God's very presence. And what did Jesus hear coming through that barrier? You are my beloved son. The voice of God the Father speaking. And when Jesus was baptized, he demonstrates what it is that he's going to accomplish through the crucifixion. There is a curtain, a barrier between heaven and earth. You cannot simply walk anywhere on earth and end up in heaven. You can't get there. The problem with the curtain is although the blessings of God's presence, the bread and the light and the ability to pray, although those are somewhat accessible, God wasn't. And on the other side of the curtain in the most holy place, that's where God lived. That's where eternal life was. And although there were blessings in this world, the problem is there is an impassable barrier between earth and heaven. But heaven is where life is. Heaven is where eternal life is. Heaven is where God is. And the problem is, is that he was simply inaccessible. But when the curtain tore, it was a symbol that whereas in the past, just one man from one family from one tribe, from one nation, on one day of the year could have a small glimpse of God's presence. Now, any person, male or female, from any family, from any tribe, from any nation, at any time can be in the presence of God. 
that through the Spirit of God, the barrier between heaven and earth has been ripped open and God is now free to dwell among us. That we can hear God's voice, that his Spirit can be present with us and that we can have eternal life. Mark has given us this one little phrase, but it represents something infinitely great. Jesus' humiliation tore the barrier between earth and heaven, between death and life, and between us and God. There is no more barrier. What does that mean for you and for me? When Mark 15, we have three people who really represent or show us the blessings of the barrier being ripped. The first is this man named Barabbas. Barabbas is the one, he's a murderer and an insurrectionist. Barabbas is the one that the crowds vote for and say, we don't want Jesus. He sunk so low, they'd rather have a murderer and an insurrectionist than Jesus. The powerful thing to me about Barabbas, he's scheduled to die. When he woke up that morning, he had a date with death. Barabbas was scheduled to die at 9 a.m. on Good Friday. That's his cross. He was supposed to be the one who's in between those two thieves. That was the plan. The crucifixion of Jesus was not planned. Barabbas' death was on the calendar. He's already had his last supper. It's time for him to die. But he doesn't. Why? Because Jesus was so humiliated that the crowds voted to kill him instead of Barabbas. And so Jesus literally saved Barabbas' life. He literally kept him from dying. I don't know what happened to Barabbas. Nobody does. But he will forever represent the fact that the barrier between heaven and earth means you and I have a date with death. It's already scheduled. You may not understand this, but the scriptures say before you were born, the day of your death was written down in a book. And no matter how much diet and exercise, no matter how successful you are, no matter how many relationships, no matter how much counseling you might go through, that day is fixed. Your death is already scheduled. And there's nothing you can do to move it because there is a barrier between earth and heaven. But Jesus in his humiliation rips open that barrier and volunteers to take your place so that you can have eternal life. That day in your calendar could be tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Could be next week. Could be next year. Could be 50 years from now, but the day is already set. But the blessings of what Jesus did is he made a way for you to pass through that day on into heaven and eternal life. The second person in the story is this man in verse 21 
named Simon. It says, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Now, the introduction of Simon is very strange. Normally, when you introduce somebody in the Bible, they don't have last names back then. So you got to figure out some way to say, well, well, which Simon are we talking about? you got to basically two ways to do it. The first is you can say where they're from, like Jesus of Nazareth. Okay, well, that, that tells us which Jesus we're talking about. Well, Mark's done that. It's Simon of Cyrene. We know who we're talking about at this point. The other way to do it is you could say who the person was the son of. So Simon, son of Jonah. We could have been told this was Simon, son of John. What you didn't do was say who this person was the parent of. That doesn't happen. So the question is, Mark's already identified this man, Simon, as being from Cyrene. Why does he tell us that he's got two kids? Alexander and Rufus. It's very confusing. Until you realize. Do you know who the first people to read this gospel that we're reading today were? To the best that we can understand, it was the church in Rome. We think that's where Mark is. We think that's where he writes this. He's in Rome. And he gives it to the church in Rome to read first. Do you know who's in that church? Rufus. We know that because Paul writes a letter to the church and he mentions this Rufus. Do you know what that means? It means Rufus became a Christian. Probably Alexander too. Probably Simon as well. That's why their names are in here. And the amazing thing about Jesus' humiliation is because he was beaten so badly, because he was given no food, because he's had no sleep, he literally does not have the strength to carry his own cross. In his humiliation, Simon is pulled into his story. And by being pulled into his... Listen, Simon's just in from the country. He's just in on a trip and hey, there's all this crazy stuff going on in Jerusalem. He gets dragged in and himself humiliated having to carry Jesus' cross. But it leads to his salvation. It leads to his rescue and the rescue of his children. You see, when the barrier between heaven and earth is ripped and you come close to the humiliated one, You hear the voice of God the Father say, you're my son. You're my daughter. And even if this world rejects you, I accept you. And Simon comes to faith. The third person. Verse 39. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. I find it remarkable that the first person to express faith after the death of Jesus is a Gentile Roman centurion. Probably one of the same people who put a crown of thorns on his head. Probably one of the same people who dressed him in a purple robe. This is the guy who strikes him on the head. This is the man who spits in his face. How in the world does he know that this is the son of God? 
Because in Jesus' humiliation, in his willingness to let this man beat him, he draws the man close. And when he comes close to Jesus, and the barrier between heaven and earth is ripped open, this Roman centurion who knows at this point he deserves death, finds instead a God staring back at him across the void who loves him as his enemy and is choosing to give his son. Can you imagine a father allowing this man to do this to Jesus? How great must his love have been for the centurion? And he comes to faith. Now the purpose of these characters is not to tell a nice story. They're invitations. Invitations to you and to me. And the question for you and for me this morning is which one of these three are you? Are you Barabbas? Are you guilty of sin against God and against humanity? Have you realized that sin leads to death? And there is a date waiting for you. Perhaps you have face to face with your own mortality through a sickness that you've just received a diagnosis for. Or perhaps simply through age. Or in some way you've realized death is coming and there is nothing you can do to stop it. The invitation is, Jesus has torn open the barrier. You can pass safely through to eternal life. The God who gives all life, who created all these things, is now available for you. Jesus is willing and able and offering to take your place. Are you Barabbas? Are you Simon? Have you been drawn to Jesus because, you know what, he's not a CEO. He's not a sports star. He's not wealthy. He's not handsome. He's not got everything going. He is the lowest of the low. And if you had a tough week at school this week or going to school next week or whatever it may be and you feel rejected, you feel like an outcast, that's God allowing you to see and drawing you into Jesus' story. Why? Because when you get close to Jesus, you hear God say, because there's no barrier, I love you. You are my son. You are my daughter. And regardless of what this world thinks of you, regardless of the color of your skin, regardless of your background, regardless of what you've been through, even if you are made fun of by the lowest of the low, there is one who went lower than you so that in your suffering you could join his story. And you could find a God who loves you in your suffering and saves you and your family. Are you Simon? Or are you the centurion? Have you spit in his face? Have you denied him? Have you rejected him? Have you tried to prove to others that God doesn't really exist? Have you tried to lead others astray? Have you hardened your heart and said, if God's going to let this world work this way, I want nothing to do with him? Realize this. God is letting you say those things about him. He's allowing you to beat him and spit on him 
so he can draw you close and let you know he's dying for you, his enemy. Are you the centurion? Because the truth of the matter is, this is just a nice theology lesson. Until you realize Jesus did this for you. 